Okay, we have another episode of the Vela News Podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer. I am joined by Kaylee Fretz. Kaylee, I want you to set the scene for us right now. What? Where are we? What the, what the heck is going on here? We're, uh, we're behind the building... At some sort of shooting range, yeah, which is shooting where range. it's where we've been put for uh, the day's press room. Uh, we're currently standing. I think this is an AC unit yeah. that we've put the microphones Very on. Very glamorous. And we're just hanging out back here because it's a little bit windy everywhere else. Yeah, the Velo News Podcast Studio today is probably the most glamorous it's ever been. It's literally like behind a weird building at a shooting range. Yep. Very strange. In somewhere in California, because we're out here for the Amgen tour of California. The second stage just finished up in San Jose. It was a thrilling stage, won by Rafael Mica. For good and bad reasons. For yeah. th- good and bad reasons, it was it was won by Rafael Mica. The most dramatic moment of the day and a real huge bummer came on the descent off of Mount Hamilton. When Tom Squeens, our fan favorite of the podcasts, mm-hmm. Tom Squeens crashed very hard, suffered a broken collarbone and a concussion, kind of a scary moment. Not a, it wasn't, a, it was not a good look for the sport. Yeah, really strange crash too. Kind of came into it and just lost the front wheel. And when that happens, and you're have all the weight over the front end, he just sort of dive forward and uh, he smacked his head pretty good, tore his jersey off. Uh, and then the kind of weird bit was that the neutral service came up and checked his bike like neutral service does. You know, they're mechanics. They're, they're actually they're mostly concerned with the bicycle. Bicycle was okay. Handed him back his bike. Uh, and he sort of stumbled around and then tried to get on and it, stumbled some it more. It looked bad. It was ve- I mean, he was very, very clearly had a head injury. Probably should not. No, not probably. Definitely should not yeah. have been getting back on a bike. It was reminiscent of those, like, 90s NFL football videos where somebody like, they like say he got his bell rung because yeah. he tackled someone so hard and is staggering around. I mean, it was just it was bad. Yeah. It was bad luck. Got back on his bike, rode for a little while, and then eventually was taken off his bike. And this was a, this was an interesting moment for you and uh, myself because we happened to be with the Cannondale JPEG team boss, Jonathan Vodders at the time, recording an episode of the Villain News show inside the Cannondale bus when yeah. this all went down. And Vodders was feverishly trying to get in touch with his team directors on the road to basically pull Toms off the bike. Yeah, and it was basically it's an, it's an issue of, of cell coverage. Yeah. So the directors, you know, it, watching on television, it makes it seem maybe less chaotic than it actually is sometimes. You know, the director wasn't in the right place. The director didn't even know where Toms was. Yeah. Uh, had to go find him, physically get him off his bike. I mean, that's the thing about, about these riders is they really don't want... They don't want to stop riding. And yeah. you just had a head injury. You're not necessarily thinking all that clearly. So Tom's is just, you know, continuing on his merry way yep. uh, and really need to get off the bike. So they, they did finally get through to uh, the Canandale director, Tom Southam, um, and Tom pulled him off the off the bike and off the road. Right. Yeah, it's going to be a story that we uh, follow going forward because I think there's a lot of interesting components to this, everything from head injuries and proper protocols to when do you say no to a rider. Um, and so stay tuned to velonews.com because I, I can guarantee we're going to have more coverage around that. But we need to talk about this show in general. We are talking about the Tour of California men's race. We are going to be talking about the wrap-up of the women's Amgen Tour of California Breakaway from heart disease, empowered by SRAM. And we also have to get to the Giro d'Italia because we had bonkers action go on. On Blockhouse. Stage 9 to Blockhouse. That's right. Everyone's been talking about it on the interwebs. We had the parked 
motorcycle on the side of the road that took out the whole race. Took and out Team Sky. Yeah, just the most Jiro of Jiro things happened. Yeah. Maybe we'll start with Jiro since uh, chronologically that, that one kind of came first. Yep. Uh, yeah, so Jiro Stage 9, uh, uh, <laughs> sort of the first major mountain test since Etna. And, and, and Mountain Etna on Stage 4, definitely the headwind kind of kept that from being as exciting as we were hoping for. Blockhouse was certainly exciting. So 14.2 kilometers to go and uh, a motorcycle, a police motorcycle parked on the side of the road, not all the way off the road, on a very, very fast section. Uh, according to Chad Haga, who saw the whole thing uh, and narrowly avoided it, it was a, sort of a downhill right-hand corner situation, and they couldn't see the moto until the last second, and they couldn't take their hands off the bars to point at it or anything like that. They All they could do was yell, is what Chad said. And it was clipped by one of the Sunweb riders, who then went flying into the peloton and took out a number of Team Sky riders who were all riding together. Uh, including Garrett Thomas, who apparently uh, may have briefly dislocated his shoulder or something like that. Yeah, it was ugly. It, it was, was one bad. of those. It was one of those like agony of defeat, wild, wide world of sports clips really where you bad. just watch it over and over again. You're like, oh god, I'm so glad I'm not a professional. So Thomas lost five minutes. Yates lost five minutes. Those are the two major losers, and then the uh, the race kept going up the road, and that was sort of a source of a bit of contention. Yeah, it was. Um, well, should we throw it to our men on the ground? We I have think we should. Andrew Hood is in Italy following the entire race, and I believe he linked up with Rupert Guinness to have a little bit of a debate about uh, whether or not Team Movistar should have kept the pace going. So uh, let, let's hear from the boys. Buonasera from Foligno. We are here at Terrazza partaking in the uh, tradition of aperitivo crowd keeps getting bigger uh, set the scene for us here where are we what are you looking at what are you seeing well look uh, the stage start is right just like probably about 50 meters 70 meters up from where we're sitting now andy and uh you know this this town is uh it, it was here last year at the same time so just from that point of view this town has been very lucky to have the giro come here twice within a year and, and tomorrow's stage, well, the stage, the time trial is going to be a very important stage. So, that, you know, it's going to be a great atmosphere once once these little streets, these nooks and crannies, they're going to be crammed with riders not just warming up. They're going to be trying to find their way to the start. If, you don't want to get lost here in Foligno <laughs> if you're a rider and miss your, state, your time, you know, your scheduled time because there's going to be crowds, there's going to be noise, there's going to be, you know, there's a lot of, lot of potential hazards there before you even start the time trial. Noise and Italia are synonymous, <laughs> we have discovered. Uh, yesterday, a lot of fireworks, you know, that crash on the run into the Black House, you know, I think really kind of marked this Giro. There was a big debate, of course. Uh, in that situation, do you wait or do you race? Uh, of course, there was a motorcycle on the edge of the course. Sky and uh, Ulrika were really the, the biggest victims, plus Kelderman went down. Uh, you know, Rube, you were up there. We were up there at the summit yesterday, the finish line. You talked to Matt White, sports director, Rika Scott. He was quite vehement that he thought that uh, the race should have stopped at that moment. Yes, he certainly was. He, uh, you know, Matt White didn't. He wasn't shy about lobbing the hand grenade there. You know, he, uh, you know, first he spoke about the, you know, his, uh, abs- you know, sort of frustration about Adam Yates's uh, time loss and the circumstance with the mo- with the uh, motorbike. But then, um, certainly, his uh, persona or his, his sentiment shifted very suddenly when he spoke about what he thought was uh, uh, the unsports, unsporting behaviour of, um, of Movistar uh, because he felt that 
at that time, Movistar riders would have known that there were three or four Grand Tour contenders on the deck, as he said, and he felt that there was enough time that they should have slowed down to allow them to at least get up and at least find out whether they're, they're, they're fit to race or not and then continue on. And um, he, he said several times after that that uh, he felt it was totally, uns- you know, it wasn't within the realms of sports, sportsmanlike behaviour and it was wrong. He did say he does really respect the Movistar team, but he said he felt today, as in yesterday, they made a bad decision. Yes, you can understand. I think the, the only reason why there is a debate in this situation from yesterday was the fact that it was uh, an incident that was beyond the normal racing uh, paradigm in the sense of it was an obstacle from a motorbike that shouldn't have been there caused the crash. It wasn't like a rider error or a crash like last year. Kwesik in the pink jersey crashed into the snowbank. And a lot of people said you should wait. In that situation, I was like, no, the race is on. In fact, yesterday, I think the race is on. I think it's impossible to stop the race, even in that situation where it was an outside influence kind of causing the crash as opposed to just, you know, a pileup in the bunch. Um, but I'm in, the, I'm in the old school camp. When the race is on, you don't stop the race, okay? If it's like 30 Ks into a race, yeah, you can stop. Okay, guys, let's get up. Let's keep rolling. But even then, sometimes you, it's not right to stop because a lot of these small teams are trying to get in the breakaway. So you stop the race, then the breakaway doesn't go, and then those small teams lose their chance, even in that situation. So I think almost all the time, especially in the, like yesterday, Movistar was ramping it up. They were dry, it was a sprint to the base of the blockhouse yesterday. To me, you don't stop the race. Yeah, look, I see your point there, Andy. But, you know, and there is a fine, there is, we're talking about a very fine line here. I think we agree on that point. There's a very fine line. But uh, Movistar, you know, had, had said, a, you know, they had dictated the race, you know, out to that point. But you've got to also realise that Orica Green Edge, Orica Scott, sorry, had also, Svein Tuft was at the front there, you know, leading in, you know, into that. But So Orica Scott had committed as well. They did their, they, they were putting their fair share of work in, uh, into that tempo to contribute to Movistar's work. And I also think that, um, uh, so that's probably part of uh, Matt White's frustration, that they were chipping into the workload. Now, um, the other thing I just want to say is that uh, with, with, uh, with Movistar, look, they're, they're a cutthroat team. They're a ruthless team. And I say that with compliment as much as the question of whether that fine edge, what is ruthlessness and what is just tipping over, the, you know, pushing the envelope too far, I tend to think they're very... I know where you're going with this. <laughs> I, th- I think they'd make very good postmen, put it that way. And I don't mean it in that sense of, in America, that US post. I just mean it, you know, you know, they, they're pushing it to, to a certain degree. And I, and I also think there's a little pattern there because a couple of years ago, 2014, 2014 in the Giro, when Nero Quintana was in the breakaway and coming down the Gavia, they pulled the red flag out and Nero said, I didn't see the red flag. No lo he visto. Yes, everyone else saw the red flag. And I just wonder, you know, how much does he play on, um, uh, on that edge of the envelope, of pushing the envelope of the uh, interpretation of the circumstance around him at the time? Well, it is an interesting uh, line that uh, we're seeing in the kind of the modern peloton, the, you know, the riders. They're a lot nicer to each other than they kind of used to be. We don't see those ruthless uh, kind of uh, rivalries. You know, back in the day where guys would literally just hate each other in the peloton and they would, you know, do treacherous things to each other, try just to win. And today, I mean, it's much more PC. You're seeing even the sprinters all, you know, hey, nice win there, buddy, on Twitter. And Nairo is old school still, man. He's like, he's going to win. And 
I mean, he's not breaking the rules. Well, you know, you could say he's breaking uh, some perhaps some standards of conduct. You know, that's debatable. Well, he's, he's, but he's, he's here to win. No, he's pushing the rules. Put it that way. I, I, no, he's probably racing. He's probably using the rules to his to his to his service, and that's okay. Look, that's that's probably. That's, I'm not saying what he's what him and the team are doing is illegal. But one thing that they could have done, if they had of, say, for example, said, hey, look, three contenders are on the deck here, ease up. If he had to order them to ease up just for a couple of minutes, just to find out, because they would have found And you know what? He could have had extra class to the panache he already has. Everyone knows he's the, he's the strongest rider here. Yeah, but how hard is it? to stop the race when you're at that moment your adrenaline's up and these guys are you know they have the whole stage plan to stop that race to slow way down and then just start up again to throw the clock. I don't know man I don't think that's that that would be I think very hard to do it plus be potentially it could backfire you know they might lose the whole momentum of the climb and then uh, then you lose your opportunity they've been working for the whole year I mean they've been planning this tactical move since six months ago Look, but anyway we gotta wrap it up here guys and what okay go ahead I just think you can be a badass racer and also be have, have a bit of class. That's as well, a lot of class. All right, we'll leave it with that. Anyway, uh, we'll hopefully uh, catch up to you guys. Uh, check in again here from the Giro d'Italia. Grazie mille. Grazie. Uh, okay, Kaylee, what's your take? Should they have uh, waited? No. <laughs> no. No, they should not wait. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I get that the sportsmanlike thing to do is maybe to make sure everyone's okay but in a moment like that when the race is on and you you know Movistar doesn't know who fell down no. they don't know yeah. how bad the injuries are you know if, if every single time there's a crash anywhere near the finish of one of these bike races the entire thing is neutralized then that changes the face of pro cycling right let's let's be honest uh and i don't think it changes it necessarily in the way that we want it to be changed pro cycling is a pretty badass sport and i don't think we want to go down that road towards sort of soccer falling on the ground <laughs> holding your ankle wow kind of you, you're saying flopping oh my god <laughs> hot take crashing with the moto is a flop no no, um, I, I'm with you. Look, I think that so long as there's not a race vehicle in the front waving a red flag, telling everyone to stop, there's always going to be the motivation to push on. And you can't really argue with that motivation to push on. You know, I, the arguments that I was hearing made for why they should have stopped was that, well, three GC guys get, were crashed. You know, when you have your head down and you're going as hard as you can and you hear a crash behind you, you don't know the three GC guys have crashed. No. You just know that someone has crashed. I think the only situation, as you said, the two situations where you would you would stop a race like this is if there's a car with a red flag or if the pink jersey is on the ground yep. and that's a that's a pretty clear uh unwritten rule within cycling that you do not keep going when the leader is on the ground but that's a very specific instance and and yeah. pink was definitely still riding so Giro gc battle looks like it is naira quintana is in the lead tom dumolin he's right there i thought that Nairo's going to need to take at least a minute out of him on the blockhouse stage in order to really feel comfortable about having Tommy Dean Herrera's. And he only took 30 seconds out. So I almost see that stage win as a bit of a loss for yeah, Nairo. You know, I, uh, I disagree with that a little bit. I think that Tom staying close, particularly right now, could actually work out in, in Quintana's favor because mm. I – I think that Dumoulin will take the pink jersey on Tuesday in, yep. the, in the time trial. Uh, I think that he can take that much time on Quintana. And that just means that Sunweb has to defend the pink jersey for a week until that 
really gnarly final week of the Giro. Uh, Nairo doesn't necessarily want pink in this week. He wants pink in the last week. So this could actually end up saving the legs of his team a little bit and work out, I think, in his favor, because I think he'll take it back since we get into the big mountains anyway. Yeah, but what about Dumoulin? I mean, the thing that really blew me away was how well he did that blockhouse climb. He let the other guys go with the accelerations. He's a big diesel. He almost rode it like a top, a bottom-to-top time trial. Mm-hmm. And when you have that steady, powerful rhythm and you're not going and worrying about the accelerations, you know, you can make up, make up time on people when they slow down. So I don't know if that's going to translate to something like the Mortirolo Stelvio Day, but we'll see. I mean, if he's climbing that well, uh, you know, maybe he, Nairo needs a little more time on him. He's looking really, really lean right now. I and mean, he looks like a different rider than even a year ago. Uh, and I think that he will be climbing better than we expect him to. But that also means that he might not be time trialing as well as we expect him yeah, to. Maybe he true. won't be able to take quite as much time as peak of his time trial powers, Tom Dumoulin. Do you think Tom Dumoulin's a hungry man? I think he's probably a hungry man. Yeah. This whole trip, we've been joking about the hungry man because Kaylee over here is a hungry man. He needs to eat all the time. Yep. I'm pretty much constantly hungry. I'm not a hangry person, though. This That's is good. an important distinction. I don't get cranky when I'm hungry. I just get hungry when I'm hungry. Well, I think crankiness brings a, is a great segue <laughs> into our next segment of the podcast because we need to talk about the Amgen Tour California women's race. Uh, Breakaway from cancer, empowered by SRAM, powered uh, breakaway from gingivitis, powered by PBR. (laughs) We need to talk about this race because it was aggressive, it was exciting. It came down to a battle of seconds between Anna Van der Breggen and of Bulls Dolmans and Katie Hall of UHC and Kaylee. We got some drama. We got some drama. We got some bona fide like. Cussing. <laughs> Cussing at people, elbowing, shoving. We got some like uh, some good drama to talk about here. We have a rivalry. We have defi- definitely a rivalry. I, you, you get these things a lot when big European squads come back into the U.S. I yep. mean, we've heard about it at, at races like the Pro Challenge, you know, where the big teams would just sort of push little guys like Jelly Belly around. And that, it's kind of a – it's not quite the same in the women's field, but it's a similar dynamic. So Bulls comes in. They have the the Olympic gold medalist. Uh, they're up against you know who are these who are these blue upstarts floating around like totally. They're like, hey, uh, you were uh, racing a bike uh, for the first time three years ago. I've been racing since I was twelve. Exactly. So. Uh, when it was down to just three seconds between Katie Hall and, and Vanderbregen, yeah. uh, we had that intermediate sprint this on Saturday. This was stage stage three. Yeah, so yes. at, stage two was a queen stage. It was a three second gap after that, and yeah. there's no more climbing, so there's no more opportunity to take seconds naturally. Yeah, there are only bonus seconds. Uh, and basically, Vanderbregen, well, Vanderbregen's teammate Christine Majerus sort of gave gave uh, Katie Hall's teammate Ruth Winder a bit of a flick coming into an intermediate sprint. Uh, Ruth was charged with taking seconds, taking bonus yeah. seconds in that sprint, and essentially she was pushed. Uh, well, I shouldn't. I shouldn't. She ended up off the road. It's unclear whether it was an intentional thing or not. We've looked at the Zapruder film a few times and inconclusive, but we do know that she ended up in the dirt with unclipped, going outrigger, going yeah. uh, full on leg out. <laughs> yeah, and and some of the riders that were behind said that they thought it was an intentional thing. Uh, Ruth was very cagey when I when I talked to her and, yep. and wouldn't say either way. Uh, and obviously, Bulls defends themselves, so it's a classic sort of she said she said kind of situation. Although we did have eyes on the ground. 
seeing Ruth like tossing some uh, nasty yeah, foul language. Well, their what way. this turned into was was just sort of a war of a war of words and, and maybe a couple elbows in in the remaining stage and a half. Uh, yeah. And after the finish on Sunday, uh, yeah, there was there was there was cussing and and uh, basically right after the finish line, a bunch of bulls women kind of standing around celebrating uh, their their victory, which they had just earned. And uh, Ruth and I think one other one of her teammates sort of rolled by and. Allegedly, there were words said in UHC's direction right at the finish line by Bulls. Uh, Ruth then came came over and said, "Hey, if you want to say something, say it to my face." And we had, you know, general sort of yeah. angry, angry chatter. Angry. I'm to think of the way to say it. <laughs> Here's the thing. This, uh, to me, this shows that like all these women really want to win this race. They're aggressive. They're competitive. They have a lot of emotion. They've been training for this thing. And they take it really seriously. Um, Hot, hot take here. I like it. I really like it. I agree. I think, first of all, I like this format. I like having a race that comes down to this battle of seconds between the world's best international squad and the plucky upstart American team. That's a great storyline. But second of all, I like the fact that these women take this so seriously and are so competitive and wanting to do it that they're... they're throwing they, bows. Throwing elbows, <laughs> man. They're getting emotional and they want it. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I really enjoyed following... The women's race. Yep, I know. I totally agree. I think that stuff like this, you know, every every once in a while, when you write a story like we wrote on Monday morning, uh, you get accused of sort of tabloid journalism. I would fight back against that and say that you know these are interesting stories. They are relevant stories. This is sport. Sport is all about competition. Uh, that doesn't have to just be you know finish lines. That can also be uh, sort of battle of will in many other ways. And I think that that like you said, this proves that. Uh, that women's racing can be just as exciting and aggressive as anything else. Oh, it was more so. More yeah. so than the men's racing. Way better than the men's racing. We, we better. didn't pay attention to the men's no, race yesterday. Oh, God. <laughs> women were just, they were so aggressive. I was i was really, really pleased to see that. Uh, before we get to talking about today's stage, uh, Kaylee, you know, I saw a lot of people out there riding their bicycles. A lot of fit people in this part of the world, Northern California. Tons of fit people. Well, you know, do you have some advice for fit people? I mean, we, we ride our bikes. We're fit people. We have a little, uh, we have a little little secret for these fit people about life insurance. Yes, correct. Uh, well, the Velo News podcast is once again sponsored by Health IQ, mm. which is a life insurance company that has essentially taken into account the fact that you are a much more healthy person than the average American, yeah. and you get lower rates as a result. So you can head on over to healthiq.com slash velonews and uh, get yourself a quote. Do you think they will still offer me the healthy man I uh, quote after this week? I know we've been eating a lot of press room food, not a lot of bike riding. Big old plate of lasagna just now. Yeah, maybe a couple beers after work. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to qualify. I think that after this week, we will almost certainly not qualify for at least a, a little while. Well, we better go on the website now. Yeah. Okay, moving on. We need to talk about stage two. Um, I think a lot of us came into today's stage two, which went up and over Mount Hamilton, finished in San Jose. It's a stage we've done before, almost identical to the 2015 stage. I think a lot of us looked at this as a day, okay, maybe a Sagan, a fast finisher who can make it over the climbs, but not necessarily a day for the GC guys. And boy, were we surprised because they they dropped a bomb. GC guys dropped a bomb on Matt Hamilton today. Kind of, yeah. And it was almost, it was, it was, yes, it was GC guys. I think Rafael Micah, who ended up winning the stage, is, is a definite contender for the overall. Uh, but when I have spoken to riders like George Bennett and Ian Boswell, who are also in that group, they, 
you know, they they were they weren't necessarily domestiques, but they were not George Bennett in particular, who has uh, Robert Hessink here, right. was not necessarily sort of the team leader. Um, and so I think that that move was almost just sort of trying to set up something later. Uh, but it ended up working out, and you had four super strong riders off the front: Rafa Mica, Ian Boswell, George Bennett, and Lachlan Morton. Uh, and they just never came back. They stretched that lead over a minute, and behind them, Cannondale was the only team chasing. Yeah. Uh, it was mostly Nate Brown on the front, just just pinning it for Andrew Tulansky. And yeah, BMC had Brent Bookwalter back there, but BMC didn't really put anything into the chase, and that that gap just never came back. So. We spoke with a number of riders after the stage today, um, both guys who were in the break, guys who missed the break. Um, and the the picture that I came away with was as the group was ap- approaching the base of the climb, it was actually Lotto Yumbo that went on the front and just freaking nuked it. And Bennett was yelling at the guys to go faster, 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 faster. <laughs> and Ben King said, oh, that's when he knew something was wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lachlan sprung across, was able to make that group. Uh, Bookwalter... Bookwalter, he said, um, actually, we can hear from him right now. He basically said that like he, he raced with his legs, not his heart. Compared to years past going up Hamilton, what was it like this year? Faster, slower, what, more aggressive, less aggressive? Um, you know, I think uh, it's all relative. And I think um, the positive takeaway is that I'm a, a better rider and a stronger rider now than I was last time I went up it. I think uh, last time I went up it... Um, I was still progressing to the point where trying to make a group of 30 at a race of this level was really a big ride and a really good day for me. Um, whereas now, uh, yeah, I'm holding myself to a higher standard and, you know, I definitely expect myself to be there in that group and um, even when it gets smaller. So, yeah, physically I felt um, felt good and I felt strong and um, in hindsight probably rode with my head a little too much and not enough with the uh, heart and legs. <laughs> well, got to... Um, you know, look at the results from today, take stock, see where we're at, see who finished where. Um, definitely would have preferred not to have, you know, conceded the time we did to those uh, four guys up the road. But, uh, yeah, we got two um, unpredictable stages, I think, in the next two days. And then, um, you know, the Rock'em Sock'em Showdown at Valdi and then, or you know, a real decisive time trial. So, uh, definitely, you know, looking at the caliber of riders that are up there, you don't want to ever be trying to fight back that kind of time. Um, but it's still possible, and we're going to give it a go. Yeah, it was interesting to hear him say that. Um, and then the other guy, you know, who curiously missed that move, Andrew Talansky. Now, now you spoke with Talansky, correct? I did speak with Talansky. Uh, caught up with him at the Cannondale bus after the finish, and he basically admitted that he made a mistake. Let's listen in. That move on Hamilton, did you did you see that go, decide not to go? What exactly went down there? Yeah, you know, you make decisions on the fly in bike racing, and, you know, now I can sit here and tell you I made, you know, a wrong tactical decision, but it was a conscious choice not to go with it uh i thought it had the potential to be a little bit like tour of utah the final stage was for me last year 50k to go a lot of headwind towards the finish maybe a little bit of energy not so well spent knew we also had toms up there didn't really want to fully activate the race again uh you know that said sitting here now i can tell you it was the wrong thing but you know just as easily could have gone the other way just chatting with nate he said you think you have good legs uh, looking ahead to Baldy and time trial? Or are you confident you can claw back some of that time? Yeah, I mean, I think a stage like Mount Baldy, I felt comfortable on this climb today. Obviously, we never went full, full gas or anywhere near it. But uh, I think the stage of Mount Baldy has potential to be a very intense overall day. Uh, you know, kind of, if raced in the right way, comparative 
comparative to uh, the stage Contador, you know, created one of the most exciting stages of the Vuelta on the way to Formigal, three hours, full gas. Baldi has the potential to be the same. 30 seconds, whatever it is, 37 can seem like a fair bit. I think that kind of climbing day suits me more. Finishing up a little bit at higher altitude suits me. And then, you know, honestly, the the time trial is kind of the, the ace in the pocket. So if I can get some of that time back, or all of it, on Baldi, and then, uh, you know, do a good ride in the TT, I still think. I mean, the podium's very well within reach, but I still think the win's within reach. Still in it to win it. Yeah. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate yeah, no it. Problem. Wow, that's interesting to hear him say that. I mean, I picked Angie Talansky to win this race outright. I. Yeah. Um, I don't think his shot, I don't, I don't think he's totally blown his shot, but, you know, it's going to be more difficult for him now. No, at the end there, you know, they've gone back and I think he's done the math and uh, I think he can take a lot of the time back on Baldy and then he's probably the best time trialist that's up near the top of the standings. So I do think it's still possible that Talansky walks away with a victory at the Tour of California, but definitely did not make it easy on himself today so we have an american in the mix yeah, we do. ian boswell a guy who's been sort the of waiting the boss he's been waiting <laughs> in the wings for a number of years he's been like the lone weird american on team sky there's always that weird american it used to be uh, danny pate yep now it's the boss and I, I think he has as good a shot as anyone now to win this race now you caught up with the boss i did catch up with the boss what did he have to say well so uh he, he came into this race again not as sort of the sole leader of his team sky squad they have a couple different guys that can do something and they're they're, they're also just here to win stages with, with elia viviani so uh today even even after today i asked him straight up you know are you now the sort of the team leader of the team and he didn't really uh would not say yes to that to that question. And then I also asked him about Tom Scoinch, uh, who had that, that super gnarly crash. Um, asked him a little bit about uh, his own head injuries, because uh, Ian Boswell's had a couple of his own head injuries. Nope. And how, that sort of, even in the last couple of years, things have changed in terms of the treatment of head injuries uh, in races like this. So let's listen in to, to Ian. I say it's a bad team, but, you know, we have, we have to take advantage of days like today. And, you know, we didn't really know what would, how it would go down, but once we you know once it kind of kicked off then we just had to be there and you know between myself pete kenna uh good job elia thanks man yeah between the gc guys you know one of us had to mark the move and i just happened to be there and felt good and um at the end of the day it's kind of cool to ride with with those guys again you know george i raced with him on uh live strong uh lachlan you know we raced together quite a bit at you know when he was with jv at slipstream and i was in on bissell at tour utah mike uh you know raced with once in a while but to be honest with between the four of us it was actually a really cohesive and productive group i mean oftentimes you get a group like that and okay we kind of messed around the last 800 meters but other than that you know no one missed a turn everyone was you know honest working and no it's good to see yeah you, uh, when we chatted the other day you uh you said you weren't really sure what to expect out of this week i mean you know like you said, you don't really have a, a single protected rider. Does this put you into that role? Um, I guess with just with maybe, I don't know what the time gap was at the end, but... 50, I think. Yeah, but, you know, I'm like, obviously, I've never really, especially at this level, put out a good time trial. So <laughs> having a little buffer room is good, but, you know, we'll see what happens on, on Baldi as well. And, you know, we still have Viviani here. And, you know, for myself, it'd still be nice for him to win a stage. You know, it's still a World Tour race, so doesn't mean like i'm just going to sit in and and not try to help out for the lead out so uh you know every day we have an opportunity to try to win a stage so whether it's you know mountain stage time trial or or sprint stage you know we'll we'll be a team obviously legs feeling pretty pretty good today 
what are you expecting on Baldy? I mean, are you, are you expecting to be able to climb with the with the front guys? Um, we'll see. You know, still a few days away, and you know, today I felt good on on Hamilton. Um, I was actually surprised because George went, Lock Lament, and I just kind of sprinted a little bit, and sure enough, I was right there with him, and that was the gap. And obviously, Mike is you know a, a seasoned veteran; he came across without much issue, but. Um, that's a different day as well because it's a lot more climbing and you know we're at altitude it's longer climbs you have to ride you know a bit more your own pace but no I felt comfortable today um, but no I mean there's some strong guys like you know George and Micah even Lachlan you know once you're on those flats and stuff I was like oh these guys are these guys are strong <laughs> you know so just making sure to not do too much did you see any of the uh, Tom Scoinch incident I did I was actually behind like all the descents I mean I came off that bad crash three weeks ago so you know I don't I don't obviously I don't want to get dropped on the downhill but I'm not I don't want to like take crazy risks and this descent was treacherous last time we did it um so I was behind him and that's why I was behind him because I didn't want to take any risks I figure you know maybe from the tv it looks like I'm burning extra energy but you know you just kind of if you just sit you know 50 meters behind you can kind of see how those guys are braking and ride your own um, your own pace on the downhill. I don't. I don't know what happened. It was a straight road, like kind of gradually bending left, and looks like his front tire just busted out, or I don't know if a rock got cut in, caught in his front wheel. But yeah, he went down pretty hard. And he's such a nice guy. Like, yeah, I feel really bad for him because, and he's he's won the stage last time as well, and it's a good finish for him. So, have you ever dealt with concussion stuff before? Any bad head, head injuries? Oh yeah, I've had a lot of concussions. Um, 2010, before Tour de Lavenir, I was unconscious for five minutes. And Ben King went back to get the director, and I still raced the next day. I, it was so bad that I was, like, unconscious, and I didn't wake up until they came back for me. I would like, carve out my helmet just to fit, fit it over my head because my ear was so swollen. Um, and I've had multiple other concussions as well. So it's something that at the time, though, you don't really think about. When you're a young U23 rider, I was like, well, I have to, I have to do this race. It, it wasn't even in the question to skip the race. Yeah, I mean, it seems like you basically have to be protected from yourself. I mean, Tom's was pulled out of the race today by a director. Um, do you guys yeah. have a do you have a concussion protocol yeah, here? Yeah. yeah, so we do now with our with our team doctors. But that's one thing that, <clears throat> you know, at this level, like the doctors that on our team are looking after our health and making sure we're healthy. But like you said, the rider usually wants to keep going. It's hard for the team to. Well, it's hard for a rider to like not want to race because as riders we want to race. So it's up to whether it's the medical staff or the UCI or someone to just say, you know, there's a concussion protocol that riders can't race if they have a concussion or even potential symptoms of a concussion. Yeah, well, I mean, I think now Boswell, I'm saying it, I'm doing it. He's going to win this race. He's my pick. I mean, he knows how to time trial. He can climb. Yeah, sort of. Sort of? <laughs> kind of, sort of? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, as we just heard, he's not totally confident in his time trial, but it's not terrible either. Uh, he, I mean, he's one of those guys that has never really had to had to time trial, honestly. Right. Like, if you're not a GC favorite and you're not a time trialist, you use time trials and stage races as recovery days. Like, all you want to do is make time cut, and that's always what he's done. I, he, he, I don't think he has any idea what he can do in a time trial. Mm, interesting. interesting hey, do you have any, uh, you have any Cat 3 type advice for time trialing? Because <laughs> I do. I'm not a Cat 3, Fred. I'm not allowed to. I'm, you can't ask me. So my Cat 3 advice for time trialing is even more ridiculous because I was also a triathlete for a number of years. Oh, no. So I'd say that, uh, yeah, you know, you got a big time trial coming up and uh, you want to win the race. Um, fish that time trial bike out of the uh, garage, like, the night before. Oh, yeah. You know? Um, 
throw the clip-on bars on, uh, maybe roll it around the driveway. You're good to go, man. You should be <laughs> fine. And if you're a you're, if you're triathlete, t- uh, Cat 3, maybe think about taking off that bento box and the weird water bladder that attaches to the rear of the bike because I don't think that's UCI legal. But do not put sleeves on. Sle- <laughs> sleeves are still, still banned. Yeah. Totally go sleeveless. <laughs> go in the race kit. It's way faster. I mean, like, bare skin, way faster than... Yeah, sure. Yeah, the other thing is for time <laughs> trial, just hard as you can go, right out of the gun. Immediately. Immediately. Yeah. Red line. Okay, well, I mean, that's going to be the next test. I mean, we have Baldy, we have the time trial, and that's going to be that race. So let's uh, let's wrap it up here, Kaylee. We have, uh, for the second segment of the podcast, I think a very interesting interview. We uh, were hanging out in the press room, and Mr. Jonathan Vodders came in. and uh, Looking look, suave. Looking lost. <laughs> <laughs> let's admit it. He was super lost. He was like, where's my team bus? And we're like... I don't know, but we're here, and so you, you need to talk, you need to, talk us. to us now. Um, last week, Jonathan had a story about his team in the Wall Street Journal, basically talking about the team's financial breakdown. And I had some serious questions for him after this about the financial state of the team, because it sounded like you know he's he's wanting more sponsors, he's wanting equity partners, needs some more cash. And so we 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 talked with him about the team, his decisions over the last few years. It's a good chat. I think you guys are going to enjoy this one. Very serious, furrowed brow questions. Very furrowed. Uh, thanks for tuning in to the Velo News Podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer. I want to set the scene for you right now. I am sitting at a park bench um, next to a uh, skeet shooting range. Yeah, trap trap and skeet. Trap and skeet. Uh, we're out here in the outskirts of San Jose, California, stage two of the Amgen Tour of California. And I'm sitting across the table from uh, a real veteran of American bike racing. And trap and skeet shooting. And trap and skeet shooting. He did not fly his airplane out here, but I... Did you bring your guns? Did you bring some guns? No, 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 no guns. No. Uh, Carry on only. It is Jonathan Vodders of the Cannondale Drayback professional team. Jonathan, we just happened to run into our, into each other at this like shooting range that is also the media center for this stage of the of the Tour of California. And I had a question for you. I wanted to talk about this story that appeared a few days ago in the Wall Street Journal. Um, in the story, you were talking about where Cannondale Draypack is from a financial perspective, wanting to bring on some new sponsors, perhaps some new equity partners. And so I guess a good place to get started is what was the thrust of the story and, and where is the team at from a business perspective right now? Well, the, the, the thrust of the story was quite simply that uh, if we want to get back to being one of the more competitive world tour teams we have to reinforce uh our finances yep. and that's the, the the pure and simple answer um it's not simply a matter of just going out and buying better riders it's also that um because of the incredibly inflationary um rider market over the past six or seven years uh, in order for us to, you know, even pay the guys that we have fair market value, we've had to make a lot of cuts in stuff like aerodynamics and training camps and physiology and just support that, that you know, young up-and-coming riders need. Um, and we got to change that. We, we just, we, we need, it's not that we need to go and buy Peter Sagan. 
but we do need to support the talent that we have a whole lot better and you know and look at bringing on you know a few new high dollar pieces of talent the ownership of the team doug saying it quite simply um is a little tired of scratching um that doesn't mean you know that there's anything fatal on the horizon but i would say all of us are a little bit i mean listen you, you look at the history of the team you know we lost wiggins to big money I mean, I, there are a number of riders that I've, you know, lost in negotiations to just, you know, 5X the paycheck. It's a lot. Yeah. And guys that quickly go on to win a lot of races. Um, you know, our team cars have 200,000 kilometers on them. Um, we're, we're just not – even the talent that we have, we are not supporting them – to the level that they deserve as to say you know with sky as an example yep. uh when they want to do an altitude camp they just rent that hotel on the top of the tida all year like mm -hmm. they've got at least five rooms in that thing 365 you want to go train in tida go i can't afford that right um i can't our infrastructure just doesn't support that sort of an arrangement um so we're not you know, we have one coach on staff um we lost a very crucial member of our team a couple years back uh in aerodynamicist that made huge differences in our performance over the years robbie ketchell mm -hmm. to sky and that's just happened over and over and over and over again so um you know that's just it's tiresome quite frankly and 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 it's and then it's tiresome that your readers and most cycling fans in general um you know, they just say, oh, well, look, Sky's really awesome. And, uh, you know, BMC, they kick ass or whatever. And, well, these guys aren't so good. What the hell? And, you know, the fact of the matter is we operate on one-third, one-third the budget of Sky. Right. Well, I think a lot of times people <laughs> just associate that with personnel. And they say, okay, yeah, you know, someone like Cannondale, a team like Cannondale Draypack has a smaller budget, and that to a certain degree is reflected in personnel, but I know the riders on that team, and they're all, they're all pretty good. Why can't they win? So to hear you talk about the behind-the-scenes infrastructure like coaches and training camps and the nuts and bolts, I mean, that brings it a little bit more to life for me. Well, and also just, listen, I have always taken a recruiting strategy to find outsiders that can win big races. Right. So could I have taken a recruiting strategy to find, uh, you know, riders that can just knock off a stage win here or there, sort of a second tier sprinter that can snag something once in a while um, and up our win count? Sure. Right. That isn't beyond our budget. But I've always selected riders, and I'll use, you know, Dylan Van Barl fourth in Flanders and Sebastian Langeveld third in Roubaix as examples. Dylan may get there someday, but as of right now, he is not a monument winner just yet. Right. And Sebastian uh, is a guy who is incredibly astute and knows exactly how to ride those races. Um, but he's also not a monument winner, minus, you know, some extremely lucky things happening for him, right? But those are the type of guys that I look at and go, yeah, but if I take 
Dylan and Sebastian on the same team and then bring an outsider like Sepp van Mark in and we can create sort of a strange team dynamic that messes with the race pattern in Roubaix and all of a sudden we can get a rider, an outsider to win a monument. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of victory I enjoy. Knocking off a stage of Trainer Adriatico, quite frankly, it's, I mean, it's not that I don't see value in that. It's that my experience with global corporations is that that level of a race, um, to them, winning is less important than you know getting a fun sort of story from inside the bus right. after the race. It's it's you know, Roubaix is important, Flanders is important, Tour de France incredibly important, Giro sort of also, but. Um, you know, I mean, I can tell you an example of that is when when uh, when Dan Martin won Liège Bust on the Edge. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that ninety five percent of the people in Garmin marketing at that point in time didn't. They said, "Oh, well, where is this race?" Wow, because I mean, on on our end, we were all like high fiving each other and really excited because you know it's it's Liege Bastille Liege. It's this right. timeless, ageless, humongous monument. Yeah, which I mean, it's it's a monument, and of course, but my point is, is I've always recruited to like you know the Ryder Hedgedals of the world, the Johan van Sommerens of the world, the you know the, the, like this kind of crazy outside pick that if you create a correct team dynamic and you create a correct support structure around them and you pick up a little a couple little of these advantages like having Robbie Ketchel on staff like sort of getting every last little detail right then you sometimes get these upset victories in really big races mm-hmm. and that counts for sponsors what about the allure of going after GC riders that I wouldn't say are on the downward trajectory but have had a dip in performance because I I always think about like the the NBA model which is like you know you look at the teams that year in year out are really good and they're they're teams that recruit and develop young talent and they don't go chasing after free agents and they don't spend a lot of money on flashy hires and I wouldn't say that your team has had a lot of flashy hires but I'm thinking of like Pierre Roland and um, Rigoberto as guys yeah. who were who were team leaders at other other teams and you know didn't have the performances for a few years and and you know their contracts were up and you were yeah. to get them but I've always thought well why I guess why spend the resources on a guy like that versus putting those resources towards guys on the way up well I mean we have a lot of guys on the way up yeah I mean, it, th- th- those. I mean, what you're describing is the two sides of the curve that we operate in. As to say, you know, when Ryder Hedgedal won the Giro, he was 32 years old, yep. and you know, we also operate. I mean, we have the youngest median age of any World Tour team, so we're sort of operating on both sides of that curve. Where we're not operating is in the middle, because that's where you know, your Richie Port, your Chris Froome, your Alberto Contador, and so on and so forth. Peter Sagan, the obvious example, Quintana, another obvious example, those are riders whose compensation level basically is around half of our entire rider payroll. Mm. So that's where we sort of can't touch. So yeah, I'm always, I'm on the fringes, you know, in my recruiting strategies. And I'm always on the fringes in, in a way that is thoughtful and that, okay, well, maybe he can take it one step further if we do x y and z and 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 i you know i push the guys really hard and you know and personally coach a lot of them and 
sometimes it works really great like with Dylan and Sebastian and and you know sometimes they totally explode because they can't handle you know trying to push it to the next level because maybe they're just not you know of that level mm. um, but that's our model and, and that's where we are and I think you know back to your original point I think it's just you know we like to we we like that model but the bifurcation of bo- of uh, budget levels in cycling is much more extreme than it was in 2010 right much more extreme and it's just tiresome at this point in time you know it was it was fun when you were a 10 million dollar team beating a 20 million dollar team that was cool that was fun now it's like oh 40 million okay hmm eh. Let's just concentrate on a different race or a different, you know, or whatever. Like it's, it's just, uh, it, it, it is overwhelming, um, and it's really overwhelming, you know, when it comes to the transfer market, and right. that when you hear of guys that you'd you'd really like um, to take on, it's just you're, you're not even in in the ball game. I mean, it, it, you know, a funny story with that is in, in 2011, I had been talking to Chris from before the Vuelta that he sort of came out in, and. You know, I was I was kicking the tires, but I wasn't getting it done. And then he went to the Vuelta, and I said, you know, I, I, you know, I, I think, okay. By the end of week one, of course, he was, you know, in the leader's jersey, I think, or maybe, I don't know, anyway. And by the end of it, there you go. It was one of those things where I had actually anticipated the market. I didn't move on it fast enough. Brailsford had actually said, we don't have the budget to sign you at 100,000 euros or something like that, right? We don't have the budget to sign you. I'm sorry. You know, see you later. Um, and in that one-month period, it went from we don't have the budget to sign you to here's a 2 million euro contract. I don't have that flexibility. You don't have that flexibility. <laughs> yeah. No, nope. you don't have the power to do that. Yeah, It's just yep. like nowhere even yep. close. So it was just like, you know, the discussions with Chris Froome and his agent went from uh, – let me think about this to congratulations on your new contract with sky right and, and that's it yeah you all the all the ryanair <clears throat> tickets on ryanair and uh right. cars with three hundred thousand kilometers on them right not gonna not gonna bring chris room to the team no and listen i'm i'm not complaining at all i it, but nonetheless you know the story in the wall street journal was hey if somebody wants to step in here you know we can we can do a hell of a lot better job than right. we are doing but we need some resources to make that work was it a story, though, of, hey, if someone doesn't step in, we're not going to be around? Uh, I mean, listen, Dre Pack is 100% supportive. Cannondale is 100% supportive. I mean, that decision ultimately rests with Doug, as it does every year. Right. Um, you know, I, I mean, like I said, it's it's really up to him, but I think that's putting it a little bit in an extreme standpoint. Okay. I mean, we have we have a lot of good funding. Um I think we just really like to get back in the real game is, is right. really what it comes down well, to. Well, I wanted to ask you that because there was part of me that read that story and thought, oh, you know, is this some canary in the coal mine type moment where, you know, because I could tell that the the motivation was out there to bring on partners, but I just didn't know whether that was a, a thing of like, if we don't, if we don't bring on a partner, um, I'm going to be, you know... Um, I don't know, fly, flying people around in my airplane as a business next year. <laughs> <laughs> that that is not a very good business. Um, yeah, I I mean, weed tourism, fly people in from out of state to uh, right. Colorado. That, that's a I got a funny story with you about Floyd and that. But anyway, that's a, <laughs> um, 
But yeah, strictly speaking, uh, delivering marijuana in an airplane, even inside the state of Colorado, is illegal. So just <laughs> yes, yes, of course. We are on the Villainous podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we are on the Villainous podcast. Like to keep everything above board. Uh, but now the question of you know whether this was a, a make it or break it moment for the team. Um, it sounds like that's not the case. I mean, we hit a make it or break it moment every single year of our existence. Right. Um, but that wasn't the purpose of this article, no. Okay. Um, this was a, hey, let's try to scare up some support. And we knew that when we put that out there that it was, the, that, you know, some people were going to go, oh, wait a minute, you know, and make a couple writers nervous and whatever else. But, but that's, I mean, end of the day, that was, that was anticipated. Um, but, yeah, I mean, cycling, listen, it's a make it, I mean, for the teams that aren't Sky, it is a make it or make it proposition every single year. And whether people realize that or not, you know, that's uh, that's a different story. I mean, the closest we've ever come to not, and nobody even knows about this, is uh, it was like a couple days before Christmas in 2011. And um, we get a call from this guy, a distressed private equity investor in Toronto, that says, hey... Um, the, the finches in the background are loving yeah, this story, by the exactly. way. <laughs> but anyway, he gives us this call and says, hey, um, you know, heads up. Uh, you know, I uh, loaned Cervello some money. And, you know, they haven't been able to make the payments. And uh, and so I'm going to own Cervello, you know, a couple days. And, you know, like, I don't think this team's very good investment for Cervello. Now, that was, yeah, it was about four days before Christmas, four or five days. And had that happened, we could not have survived. Like, it was, the financial hit was big enough that we would have just had to fold the whole thing. Mm -hmm. There was, it did not matter that Garmin was there and everything else. Like, there are all these pieces of the puzzle and one of them falls off. Whether because they had an out in the contract or whether because they became insolvent or whether because they got bought and sold or whatever, it's, it's irrelevant. Like, one of those pieces falls out. You cannot... There's no way to adjust. Mm -hmm. mm. Unlike most businesses where, you know, you can pull back a little bit of cost here and there. The cycling team, you know, 60, 70 percent of your cost is rider salary. It's fixed. And so it's essentially a binary equation. Do you exist? Do you not exist? And, you know, so like I said, we face that every single year. This article is more of a, hey, we'd like to not face this every single right. year. Right. You know, I rem I'm thinking back to a conversation you and I had. Oh, this must have been 2010 or 11 when I was working for the Sports Business Journal writing about the, the business model of putting on pro races. And we were talking about the business model of patronage in cycling and how, especially in the team model, it, at that point in time, I think it was like 50-50 or maybe 60-40 of, of teams that had basically had a business model of, of patronage, right. of sugar daddy, backstopping yeah. it. Where would you put that today? So, first thing I want to say, by the way, is that Cervelo got bought by somebody else at the last minute. Yeah. And they ended up being our sponsor for a few more years, and they were great. So, like, I don't want to – it was just this, like – it was this weird, like, five-day period where we thought that this dude, this, like, total – what is it? Pretty woman, like, come in and chop it up, break it up, you know, dude was – but anyway, it didn't happen, so. Some some total just, like, yeah. uh, Wall Street private equity guy yeah, was going to come in. We were, hey, sorry there, Jonathan. We ran the numbers. Yeah, and, that, uh, was, that was it. And it did not happen. So, anyway, I just wanted to clarify that. Because okay. I could imagine your readers going well wait a minute but they were sponsored by Cervelo in 2012 yeah it did not happen it did not occur so it was bought by somebody else and they were very nice okay. um so uh back to your question so you know sugar daddy is one thing 
a government entity is another thing. Yeah. Um, you know, a sort of a packaged sponsor is another thing. So if you if you want to boil it down, I mean, we could go down, you know, government, Lotto, Lotto, FDJ, Astana. I don't know what you call Katusha. Is that, that's like... Uh, if any of our listeners are from uh, <laughs> yeah, Russia yeah, I, or yeah. Kazakhstan. I mean, it's just uh, an extremely wealthy individual. Yeah. Right. So, um, BMC, extremely wealthy individual. Uh, you know, so, it, it, I mean, Sky is a bit of a mystery if it's, you know, if it's like British Federation money or if it's Sky, or if it's James Murdoch Murdoch's sort money. of like twisting. I mean, I don't know that one. Um, you know, Orca Green Edge is some Orca, or sorry, Orca Scott is some Orca Scott money, a lot of Jerry Ryan money, um, you know, and some support from Australian Federation. So the number of teams that are existing strictly on a commercial sponsorship model um, without, uh, you know, something like that in the background, it, it's not very many. Right. Very, very few. Um, I think, quite frankly, the best examples because the cost model makes more sense, are the French Pro Continental teams. Because mm-hmm. your French Pro, like, Direct Energy, to me, those guys, they're operating half the budget as a world tour team. Right. They are guaranteed to go to the Tour de France. They are a national company, doesn't do business outside. I mean, that's a good model. They're, they're always going to nail that. Now, if... So people say, well, then why don't you become pro-continental? Well, I can tell you that. Because we wouldn't get invited to the Tour de France. We are not French. ASO does not think, hey, wow, that guy JV, he's awesome. We really like it when he bashes us in the press. Totally. (laughs) Let's get JV over here. He's always such a uh, friendly voice to what we're trying to do. Right. When we uh, accidentally make a rule change that screws over half the peloton. So that's the – so, you know, the the best examples of commercial models are, are, you know, those teams um and i'm sure that direct energy probably gets great roi on that investment Mm -hmm. and you know they don't have to send a team to all these other races they don't have to uh have the infrastructure able to do a triple program all the time um so you know chapeau um but yeah, of, of the World Tour teams, yeah, very few are operating on a strictly commercial commercial model. I think about that through the lens of the American continental and pro-continental teams as well, because, I mean, you know, here we are at the Tour of California, and there's two continental teams, and um, from, you know, the conversation I've had with both continental teams, it's a it's a little bit of both. Although with Jelly Belly, I, it's, a, it's a straight marketing play, you know, they sell a lot of jelly beans, mm. and I think... I mean, Danny runs that team out of his garage and is yeah. very budget conscious yep. and has done a lot with a little for this race a really long platform. time. Yeah. I mean, this race is the platform for them every year. Right. And then all of a sudden it's like if you shut off access to a race like that, you know, then that's that's the proverbial getting shut out for the Tour de France right. for someone like you. So it does seem like it can exist in the lower levels of cycling so long as you have that one invite that, like, keeps you alive. Right. This sounds very stressful. It makes makes being a journalist actually sound seem um, really like uh, secure well, in this in, you know, in this the profession that we have. You know, from our perspective, uh, large global sponsors aren't going to you know they're not going to sign on for the figures that it requires to do a world tour team unless you're guaranteed mm-hmm. a slot in the Tour de France. So, and, and when I say guaranteed, it's guaranteed at the time of signing the contract. So, being a pro continental team is it's it's essentially not an option. So you have to scale up 
to be a world tour team in order to be guaranteed that if you want to approach you know global companies okay what and else? that's I mean I you know I have been in many discussions with ASO where they argue this was they're like yes but we always invite the best pro continental teams and so on and so forth this is, you know okay fine let's say that's true it still doesn't matter because you have to sign the contract with the sponsor 10 months before the Tour de France happens mm -hmm. and if you don't have a guarantee it's just well wait a minute so what are we buying and this goes back to the whole discussion that I know I've had over and over and over and over and over and over again ad nauseum is that... Again, yeah. the Finch is very excited yeah, about exactly, this yeah. next discussion we're having. <laughs> yeah. If you... I mean, ad nauseum is that, that you want to get this fundamental financial instability out of the equation, the easiest fix. Everyone's sort of digging around for, you know, alternative revenue sources, and, and that's great. All that stuff is great. But the easiest fix is just... You know, these are the 18 organizations that do the Tour de France, period. Right. Boom. Done. And therefore, you can go out and sell that. And, you know, and you want to, a new sponsor wants to come in or a new owner wants to come in. Some people always say, well, what about if there's a new owner group that wants to come in and do it their way? Fine. They can buy one of those 18 franchises. No problem. But if you want, you know, to build equity in an organization and the way you build equity is being able to guarantee your revenue stream and the way you guarantee your revenue stream is to guarantee entry into the platform that gives you that revenue stream i mean it's super simple it's like business 101 but um you know but it's just not something that i think aso will ever do uh voluntarily um well what about a happy business story for cycling. I'm really interested in what's going to happen with this Hammer Series race. It sounds yeah. like something that a lot of people have been working on. What What are your hopes and ambitions for what comes out of well, that's, Hammer Series? Well, it's trying to set up a, another platform, you know, yeah. a platform that's media-friendly, um, that's, you know, set up for what the way people view things nowadays mm -hmm. in sort of, you know, short snippets of action and being able to analyze data from those short snippets of action. I mean, that's that a lot of other sports lend themselves much more easily to that than cycling does. And Hammer Series is trying to kind of change it over that direction. Urban formats, uh, placing the races at times of day where, you know, people will have free time to actually watch the race, um, whether it be live stream, television, you know, live, whatever it's there, it's it's set up. You know, the Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, like Thursday afternoon, Friday afternoon, Saturday, Sunday format, set up in a building format, meaning that the race builds on mm -hmm. itself as opposed to sort of the stages aren't necessarily correlated to one another, so on and so forth. So, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's it is a great concept. It's obviously in its infancy, um, but I think long term, it's it's got legs. I think the Villainese need to have an event like this of our own where we could have a uh, Giro d'Italia downhill road race uh, where you just, you know, kind of shoehorn the rules in at the last minute. And then a fixie crit, like the Red Hook Criterium. Yeah, put, exactly. Stream the whole thing. Pure entertainment. Just <laughs> no get on all the trends all. in cycling right now and uh, sell some sponsorships to it. Get right. some, like, uh, some energy drink companies involved and... Uh, just bank it that way. Now, I mean, Jonathan, you know, I, you, we've talked about this for, for years. It's, there's just 
Cycling is a difficult sport. I always tell people that between races, except for the Tour de France, races and teams, the resting state of a bike race in the United States is dead. The resting state of a bike team in the United States is dead. It's only by incredible amounts of effort and money and sweat and banging your head against oh, yeah. the wall that these things are able to live. And I don't know if we're ever going to move away from that um, right. that that model. Yeah. I mean, I can I can tell you with it. You, you, I mean, people always ask me, um, you know, when do you start looking for another sponsorship? And I say the day after you sign the one that you just got. Yeah, right. Always, it'd yeah. be it could be a three-year commitment. You, the day after you're out looking for something new, because it's the only way that you'll actually give yourself the the time to find it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's 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 a truly. I mean. When I describe to a lot of my friends that are in other businesses what we do, they, it, they're blown away. They're like, so basically you gather enough money for, to, you know, for a startup. You're essentially in a startup phase, and you gather your venture cap money, money every year with the guarantee that those investors will not get their money back. <laughs> Oh, yeah. And you do that over and over and over again. And you've been doing that for a decade. I mean, yeah. in my MBA cohort, it was, I mean, these people were, how do you, you know, can we hire you, please? Because all you have to do is raise that once for us and we'll actually, you totally. know. Yeah, it's, revenue model. My revenue coming in is your money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I spend it. Right. So that is, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a tough game. And listen, uh, the races are not much different. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, except the Tour de France, yeah, and then that's a whole different ball of potatoes. Uh, well, yeah. and they're just they're just falling over themselves to share revenue with you guys too. You know, I mean, they just can't wait to cut up some of those TV rights. And exactly. Give them but, to you guys. But here's the fun. You know, this is the funny thing about that is that. Well, I do think there should be revenue sharing. Obviously, model that out for a second. So, what happens if all the teams just get a three million dollar check every year from ASO? And there's no other restriction other than here you go, thank you. What happens? Um, Sky has still has twenty more, right? Fit, Twenty-five so where does million that money go? more. Where, where does that where does yeah. that three million go for every single team? Yeah, it goes just right back into rider salaries it, it, and it, infrastructure not even salaries. Riders, plural. Really, it goes into a bidding war right. between like about ten guys. Right. That's where it goes. It's basically just shot right out the rear end. So if you, if you even if you if you um, I mean, you could say it's like Chris Room, Peter Sagan, Alberto Conto. I mean, whoop, it's gone. Like the revenue sharing is gone. And ASO know that you have to revenue sharing has no point from a stability standpoint. Unless you have a cap. Unless you have a cap. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. Um, yeah. Well, Jonathan, we really appreciate it. This is some good insight. Again, I had read that Wall Street Journal story and had had questions, so many questions, most of which was, well, I'm going to be seeing you guys next year. And so I'm glad to hear that we will. Well, I hope. I, like I said, it's a decision every year, but... Uh but so far, we've we've managed to stave off the wolves every year. Okay. Well, thanks again, and we'll be seeing your team out there throughout the week. Thanks. Uh, okay. Well, that was um, Jonathan Vodders. I mean, I'm glad to hear that he you know, he sounds fairly confident this team's going to be around. I mean, like he said, every every cycling team especially his i mean it's just it's tough out there it could die at any moment mm-hmm. but it sounds like he's fairly confident that they'll be around it's for a while it is. 
Yeah. Yeah. But if is. you're not fairly confident, you'll be around for a while. Mm. Oh, boy. <laughs> what a segue. If you're not confident in your ability to be around for a while on this earth, uh, we think you should go check out um, our sponsor today, Health IQ, because they are the life insurance company for yep. healthy, fit people yep. like us. Think of your family. Yep. Yep. Yeah, so basically, uh, we've said this a number of times already, but this is a company that does life insurance for those of us who are healthier, and so we are less likely to just kick the bucket, and so the rates are lower. So yep. you should head on over to healthiq.com slash VelNews. And I want to thank HealthIQ and the other sponsors that have come on board with the VelNews podcast. You know, this is a project that we started several months ago. We have a lot of fun with it, and um, some sponsors are starting to, you know, thank us for the work we've done, I guess. Um, anyway, they, they help us make this project come to life and we appreciate them um so kaylee before we get out of here we need to wrap it up with a couple quick questions Mm. um from this week you know the the question that i keep coming back to is from your unserious questions um (laughs) you know mario cipollini this week had some really bad stuff to say about the jury so mean hottest like a kind of a mean take his take was flaming take flaming take from the lion (laughs) He basically said, "What the Giro? The riders of this generation are—they're like robots. Robots, they're, you know, uh, programmed by technology, and they just look at their power meters, and they're very boring. Yeah, basically. And the question was, well, okay, if you were a piece of technology, what would you be? Mm-hmm. You can't say a large AC unit that has <laughs> podcast gear mounted on it in the back of a shooting gallery shed." because that's too close to home right now. Uh, since we're on race right now, one of my primary preoccupations is, is finding good coffee. Mm. And so I think I'd be some sort of mobile drone coffee maker machine. And so I could just you know wake up in the morning and a drone would just come over and give me my morning joe. I would, if you were that piece of technology, I would buy you immediately. <laughs> I would buy you immediately. Um, I, I, if I were a piece of technology, this is a little bit more just like in line with my um, personality. I would be a um, application that breaks your bicycle <laughs> and your bicycle gear. Fred doesn't get on all that way with technology, just in general. <laughs> it would be some type of like app that you mount to your uh, your bike, and then all of a sudden, like spokes start breaking, <laughs> and you get a lot of flat tires. How many times this week have I said, "Oh, Fred, you just had to do this," and you say, "What's what? I don't know what that is." Wait, what do you mean they have eleven speed di- uh, bikes now? That's insane. We would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on velonews.com. Subscribe to the Velonews podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you are there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Velonews on facebook.com at facebook.com slash Magazine, And follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash Velonews. The Velonews podcast is produced by Velonews, which is owned by the Competitor Group. Thoughts and opinions expressed on the Velonews podcast are those of the individual as always Mm -hmm. and uh, as always we leave you this week with the Brooklyn Boogaloo blowout playing the Bernard Purdy Purdy classic Soul Drums Soul Drums